This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hello. As we mentioned last week, we have a lot of television to talk about. We're going to talk about even more of it uh, because a lot of the shows that we maybe mentioned briefly last week have started premiering. And we got some feedback from you guys about what shows you want to hear us talk more about, which we're happy to do. But first, there was real kind of what felt like earth-shaking news in Hollywood last week, which you've certainly heard about by now. Netflix had a pretty dismal earnings report and their stock price pretty severely tumbled. None of us are financial experts, but I think we all know that it wasn't a great week. And then I think the day after, maybe two days later, uh, they shut down CNN Plus after three weeks, um, which felt like a real sign of what the Warner Brothers Discovery merger might do for lavish spending within that huge conglomerate. I will say again, none of us are financial experts, but I think that we have, you know, we've been watching this all happen for a long time. I think with Netflix in particular, we have a pretty good sense of what they're spending money on, what their priorities are, and maybe how that might shift. Richard and David, you guys did kind of a back and forth uh, last week, weighing on some of this more about what will happen at Netflix from the viewer's perspective than anything else. Richard, since you wrote that, have you uh, solidified any feelings at all about what this might all mean? Not really. I think that the more that I thought about it, the numbers that the subscriber loss isn't so dramatic that I think it will change the company at all. I think it's more just a reflection of where the company is in relation to other streaming services. It's just like Netflix was not going to be able to scale forever. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if 2 million subscribers lost will cause them to rethink much of anything at this point. I mean, David, you kind of, when you guys had this conversation, pivoted it somewhat quickly to awards because obviously that's where a lot of our hearts lie. what we know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you think, when you just look at it from the outside, you're like, well, now they're going to stop spending $30 million on a Jane Campion movie that can't even win Best Picture. But like that, I think that's probably too simple an explanation. Uh, How optimistic are you feeling about this Netflix awards golden age continuing? To me, it feels like there are definitely going to be measures taken I do think that if you look at the way Netflix has spent on awards over the last few years, particularly the Oscar race, or the money that they've put into talent, into showrunners and directors, um, you could imagine easy cost-cutting and easy shifting of priorities. Um, We were already talking about Netflix shifting strategy before this based on Mm -hmm. the results of the Oscars and, you know, Apple having one contender that they didn't even develop internally that they were able to get across the finish line, despite having premiered over a year earlier at Sundance, whereas Netflix had many homegrown contenders um, that were 
you know, collectively between the budgets and the campaigns uh, cost, you know, nine figures, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they did not get there. Their ambitions have been very clear. The question is whether they're still motivated to do that or not, and, and what that means for the kinds of content that Netflix makes, the kinds of people they invest in. Uh, and I do think that's a really big open question right now because of all of the news that we've had over the last few months, you know, pertaining to Netflix. So I'm a, I'm a little worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that we had some metric, and I, don't, I wonder if Netflix even has this, because they don't require a ton of demographic information when you sign up for an account. Yeah. But they definitely know which account is watching what. And I'm curious if the attrition has been across the board in terms of what people are watching, or if it's more the sort of like people who signed up for House of Cards and more premium grade stuff and now don't like the direction Netflix has gone. Because I think that would be the most instructive thing. My hunch is that it is that. That mm. it's a lot of people who are like, no, I'm more into what Apple and HBO Max are doing, and so I don't really watch Netflix anymore. Um, you know, because I think that what Netflix has doubled down on, which is more like network TV-styled stuff, reality and all that, that seems to be going strong for them. The thing that has faded, I would imagine, that's where they've lost people, but I don't know. Yeah. The movies aren't enough to keep them, you don't think? I think especially now that you have other streaming services with their own catalogs because they have studios behind them. Like, I, I don't know if the movies, you know, the originals, I don't know if there's enough of that each year to really, I mean, of the quality stuff to really engender staying with the, the whole company just because you want to watch three movies in, you know, November. Yeah, I, I think you can point to the shows too. I mean, you have this Emmy season on the dramatic side, particularly mostly much older contenders for the streamer. There are the newer ones may, you know, their newer dramas may still be widely seen, maybe more seen than something like Severance, but that doesn't necessarily translate to the kinds of viewers that are going to make an impact for Emmy recognition and that, to Richard's point, are a particular demographic that they used to really court that have not been a big focus of theirs of late. Well, it kind of points to the insanity of your business model being made just on growth eternally. Because, like, they still have yeah. Ozark and Stranger Things, which are very popular shows. Like, people like these shows. They will stick around so they can see how Ozark ends. But that's not going to be enough to keep the business afloat. And, Richard, I feel like I'm just repeating stuff we talked about on Still Watching with Recrash. But, like, I don't get how you can make a business that's just about spending a ton of money and losing it and promising you'll grow forever. Like, that's not real. No, it's not. I mean, I, again, again, I have no idea how money works or doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I don't know. I, I think there has to be some sort of master plan, you know, thrumming at the center of the Netflix consciousness, you know, that there is a reason beyond just what we see from the outside, like, oh, they're trying to get network viewers or broadcast viewers, you know, there, there has to be some other broader idea. And I, I don't know, it maybe there's something having to do with international where Certain things aren't doing well for them overseas. I, you know, all of this debate just further highlights that, like, it would be so useful and I think better for the industry if we had any sense, any real sense of what was successful on that platform and what isn't and and where, you know, I guess they, they're being more transparent now where they have, like, that new site that, like, gives you some audience information. But, like... But it's still self-reported. Yeah, it's so opaque, you know, yeah. and it's so hard to talk about it and think about it because I have no idea how many people watched, you know, Power of the Dog or To All the Boys 3. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's, there's much overlap in that audience, but like... Except right here on this Well, podcast. right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Rebecca? 
I, th- I think like you guys are saying, I don't think we have all the answers or know what's going on internally there. But I am curious if this sort of changes the behavior of the other streamers who have been so successful. Like, could Apple be a little more transparent with their own viewership? And, and will they change the way they're, you know, creating content on their own? I mean, I, I do feel like, I think you're all saying this, the biggest tragedy of this would be if Netflix isn't supporting those filmmakers who maybe couldn't get their film financed somewhere else. You know, I mean, I think when you look at films like Harder They Fall, like I loved that film last year, and I don't know if anyone else would have paid to make that movie, unfortunately, right now. And, and there's there's dozens of those. So for me, that would be the most disappointing change from this. Yeah, the movies part of it is a lot trickier than TV, I think, because you have like a dozen streamers and networks pouring a lot of money in. You know, Stars has like a huge Queen Elizabeth series coming in June. Um, you know, they're putting their money behind Gaslit. But for movies, I think there really aren't that many people spending on something that doesn't have IP behind it. So that's a, yeah. that's a good point, Rebecca, that like that's the thing that Netflix has really been underwriting for the last five years or so. Hmm. But Apple's doing a good bit of it, it seems, or at least they're trying to. Starting to, especially. I think that's where one st- stops doing it, another can ramp that up. So hopefully if that does happen, you have other places to go. And the finances with Apple are so different too, because like the money that they spend on making movies is just nothing compared to what they bring in from selling iPhones. Like the the business model is completely separate. So it's really how long they want to like keep something more like a vanity project going. Um, the, the implosion of CNN Plus is a little bit less uh, directly related to what we talk about on here. But as I was saying, it did feel like um, made me wonder what other shoes might drop in terms of what HBO renews or what movies Wonder Brothers greenlights or, you know, the whole like HBO Max to, to theaters thing. Um, do you guys foresee like similar, maybe not quite a seismic belt tightening over there, but it, it seems like a sign that the bean counters have their eye on how much they're spending on content? I think it's sort of a miracle that HBO has survived and thrived through so many <laughs> tumultuous takeovers as it has. And so I'm both confident and, and and worried because on the one hand, it seems like everyone who's taken whatever its parent company is, you know, that month over um, seems to understand that the team they have in place in terms of curation and development uh, is really singular in this industry and, and mm-hmm. can do what really nobody else can. And on the other hand, this is perhaps the biggest content focus takeover that HBO has been involved in to date. And HBO was just put through this very controversial expansion, which I think by all accounts went a lot better than people expected, especially in terms of them maintaining, you know, real quality of programming, stuff like Hacks and The Flight Attendant, um, which are max titles, but fit in this streaming platform pretty seamlessly. But that was not the identity of HBO five years ago. And so you wonder how that could be seen by the the new overlords of Warner yeah. Discovery. But I, I have to have faith that what HBO has been able to do can be seen and, and that it can continue to, to grow and thrive as it has. Yeah, because presumably even these finance guys who are taking over the company, like, loved The Sopranos, you know? Like, they have some level of of, of insight that this stuff is working for people. Um, so you can imagine them sparing at least some version of, of HBO and HBO Max. Yeah. 
I mean, as someone who like tries to pull up screeners um, on for these shows, and then you have to go to like two different boxes for HBO and HBO Max, and I always get it wrong. I can never remember which one is on which. <laughs> um, I wonder if they'll merge the two of them. Does that not seem like maybe? I don't know if they'll save any money with it, but that's that's one of my guesses of what might happen here. Already, when Rebecca and I take meetings with awards consultants and things like that, they're not really differentiated anymore. So no. it feels inevitable. Yeah, when I was trying to fix something for an upcoming print issue, and I was like, no, H- Gilded Age is an HBO show, and then realized it was HBO Max. I was like, okay, I, I don't I don't know the difference anymore. <laughs> Do any yep. of you guys have any other predictions of what we might see there? I'd really like to see Chip and Joanna Gaines get into true crime. Mm. You know, I think if, if Magnolia <laughs> is now part of HBO or whatever. Uh, has, no, anyone, I, has there been a renovation show for houses that murders took place in? Because like yeah, that's either a Dirty Quibi. Rock joke. Oh, it was a Quibi. Of course it was. It, it wasn't it was a Dirty Rock joke. It was a Quibi. <laughs> well, Quibi was a Dirty Rock joke. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the CNN Plus thing actually gave me a little bit of hope about this merger. Because from what I've heard is that basically everyone is like, you know, it's like, VE day where they're like celebrating the streets because they're not like AT&T doesn't run them anymore. I mean, John Oliver made a joke about that on the show, basically <laughs> saying like, I can now say fuck you AT&T because uh, they're not in control anymore. I, 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 But I think that because Discovery is more content focused, like that has been greeted as a good thing. And mm-hmm. I think that shedding the Zucker sort of passion project of CNN Plus, which was in my mind, and this is no knock on some of the talent involved, like, was anyone thinking with that? Like, well, how could that ever have been a viable idea? And I think that they're just like, no, we are not doing that. We are, you know, we're focusing more on other things and, and hopefully more quality. So I'm weirdly optimistic about this, which is the first time I've been optimistic about HBO having new management in a long time. Yeah, as this news broke last week, I, w- I published a story about Our Flag Means Death, which is a HBO Max comedy. It is on HBO Max. Um, comedy, and I had just watched that, and also Minx, and I think neither of them has been renewed for a second season and had been kind of, you know, but even though both of them seem to kind of have, like, fan bases and, and some kind of level of cultural impact, and then the CNN Plus news comes, and I was like, oh, no one knows what's going to happen over there. Like, it's such a period of transition. Um, and it made me nervous about seeing something that I like, on you know, like one of those shows just not make it through because someone realizes they can save a couple million dollars. And I hope that you're right, Richard, and they, they err on the side of content rather than, you know, saving some money. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, to get away from the business side of it and more to these actual shows, a lot of new series have premiered in the last week or so, as we talked about last week, because uh, Emmy eligibility, the deadline is coming at the end of May. Um, So maybe we can start by talking about some HBO and HBO Max shows uh, that have come back. Um, I kind of want to start with Barry, which premiered this past Sunday. I've watched the first two episodes, only the first one has aired, and I personally had forgotten how great this show is. It's been three Mm -hmm. years since it was on, um, so it was kind of easy to forget, and I had certainly forgotten plot points that I needed to be reminded of. 
But I'm just so thrilled to have Barry back. Um, Richard, it sounded from your uh uh-huh that you are too. Yeah, I didn't realize that I hadn't finished the second season. (laughs) And then uh, my friend Dan Daddario, who's TV critic at Variety, was texting me and saying that the third season was really good. And I went to Wikipedia and was like, I don't remember watching any of these episodes. So I went back and basically rewatched what I'd watched of season two and then finished it and was like, oh, this is a really good show that somehow mixes violence and humor and pathos and a kind of nihilism in a really, really successful way. Like, I think a lot of shows try to do that, and they end up seeming kind of too arch or too whatever. And and this show is just so well-balanced. And, you know, this incredible lead performance from Bill Hader, and he's also writing and directing episodes. Uh, and then you have Sarah Goldberg, who is a Canadian actress who did a lot of theater in the UK, has an Olivier Award nomination. She's like a serious actor, in a show about a very unserious actor that she's playing, um, hmm. or she's trying to find her seriousness in in season two and now three, uh, is found some success. She, her, her performance is incredible. Like, mm-hmm. it's so good. Um, and Henry Winkler's amazing. So I have a tendency to forget about shows after the first season. And I think Barry had fallen victim to that, but like actually committing to spending the time and sitting down and, and watching it. Uh, I'm glad I did, because it's really, yeah, it's a, it's a special show that feels both very right now, but also like a great version of a premium cable show from 15 years ago. Ooh. David, you're a Barry fan too, right? I'm a big Barry fan. I, I think mm. this season, what really came through, to Richard's point, is you have Bill Hader doing such amazing work at the top, but this show serves its ensemble so incredibly well. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff with Anthony Kerrigan as, as Noho Hank, who is gay, who's openly gay now in the show, um, and who has, you know, storylines that range from very sweet to very silly. And and like the rest of the show, it just blends perfectly and very singularly. Um, and Stephen Root is really great. More from afar this season, but still whenever he pops up, uh, it brings a smile to my face. And Henry Winkler is... Henry Winkler's always been good. He's won an Emmy for this role, but particularly in a few episodes coming up, which I guess we can't talk about yet. Uh, he's really... <laughs> quite extraordinary um and just has a really complicated <laughs> balance of emotions to play this season and he just completely nails it i think um i've only seen the first one of the third season i loved the first two but i am really struggling with shows that are back that hadn't been on air since the pandemic started mm-hmm. because it feels like it was 18 years ago not just 3 years ago which is already a, a long gap so i felt like it took me a minute to get back into it but i probably should have gone back and watched the end of season two or something to to catch myself back up but um yeah i agree i think bill Hader's just created and delivering something pretty impeccable here and i'm, I'm glad it's back yeah i had to go read a recap because um as you mentioned david in the first episode we see noho hank who is in a relationship with cristobal and i was like i don't know who that is i'm supposed <laughs> to know who that person is i have no memory of there being a cristobal on the show so i had to really go back uh, and remember, also, Noho Hank has an amazing house uh, in this season, which um, yeah. that's what Chip and Joanna yeah. Gaines can go work on next if they if they want to, Richard. You know, I knew Anthony Kerrigan in high school. Um, he didn't go to my school, but he was like the star actor at a different high school and did summer theater program with a friend of mine. I and love this So brag. I'm very happy to see him doing very well and having a really <laughs> interesting character arc on this show. Because uh, I think that this show has been so good about with actors like Anthony and Stephen Root uh, and Henry Winkler even giving people a chance to really shine and thrive in a way that maybe other shows have not or other movie projects have not given those actors, you know, and I think what Stephen Root does on the show is like, 
I mean, I, I remember watching him in Macbeth, um, the, the Cohen Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. And he has one scene and you're like, I would watch Stephen Root do Shakespeare for three hours, you know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. this is not Shakespeare, but it it is such a great opportunity to watch a beloved character actor really tuck into something. Same with Winkler, yeah. you know, and, and Hayter to some extent. Yeah, I mean, you might have heard, hopefully you heard a couple weeks ago, uh, our colleague Hillary Buse has talked to Bill Hader on this very podcast. Um, and he talked about how Sally is the character he kind of based on himself um, and how people uh, give her shit for being too ambitious, which, you know, if it were a male character, would be different. Um, and there's just this amazing shot in the first episode of Sally on the set of the show that she has created and starred in, um, like a single tracking shot of her walking through it. And you just, you know, that's just, that's just a glimpse into the insanity that it is for Bill Hader to make this show possible. Um, but it's so, like acrobatic the way that it's pulled off. Um, I mean, the show is just shot better than anything on television, maybe, like comedy or drama. It's so thoughtful and beautiful and cinematic in every possible moment. I think the thoughtfulness is the key because there are a lot of shows that are stylish and sort of have this witty, winky visual sensibility that isn't really supported by the text. But in this show, they they have enough, just enough embellishment to make it feel really interesting to watch, but like not so much that you feel like it's all style and no substance. Yeah. Um, well, we're kind of like past the era of the bad men on TV being the star of everything. But Barry is an example of one of them, uh, as is Better Call Saul, which is also back uh, this week. It's the beginning of its final season. And I think I can get this right. It's premiering like seven episodes now and then six more later in the summer. It's, yep. it's slightly convoluted. Um, but David, you're our Better Call Saul person. And it sounds like, you know, much like Breaking Bad, like every time it comes back, people are just ecstatic to have this show back. It's... It's another one. This was one I really was like, wait, where did we leave off? <laughs> um, and yeah, no, to Rebecca's point, it's it's a problem. I think because a lot of these shows were COVID delayed, especially other ones like, like Atlanta. And um, it's just been very hard to orient yourself and remember where you left off. And also, you know, these shows are written in, in such a deliberate way, the, the better ones, especially where you want to be able to have that sense of continuity in your head. And Better Call Saul, I had to rewatch a little bit to remind myself of where we were. Um, but yeah. The new season's really fantastic. I'm very nervous about spoiling anything to anyone who's not fully <laughs> caught up. Um, the last episode had a big pivotal turn, let's say pivotal character turn. But I think that the show is, like Breaking Bad, um, a real model in natural evolution a show that doesn't you know isn't where its creators thought it would be um but is all the better for it and it's the kind of journey that is so so rare in tv nowadays because shows don't get that kind of runway um which is perhaps somewhat related to it being on amc <laughs> a cable <laughs> network that is still chugging along as as netflix shows come and go yeah it's just a, it's a really special show and a, like Barry, extremely thoughtfully made, stunning um, photography and performances, and Ray Seahorn, better win Emmy. I guess it's eligible for two more years, which is probably oh, is it? why. Oh, God, it is. is yeah, this, which, is this... I think that's the reason for the split is. Oh. That's how Breaking I... Bad did it as well. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't think about that making it eligible for another year because, like, I thought they were just trying to, like, stay fresh in the minds of voters for a while it's happening. I think it's both. My, yeah. You could argue there's, there's so much complicated strategy that goes into these kinds of drops, but you could argue that they're pretty aware that a drop of Better Call Saul this July of like six episodes is not necessarily going to be remembered in a full year, but yeah. that having these episodes eligible and voters maybe not knowing entirely the difference as they're watching the continuation of the season while voting for 
uh, this you know penultimate run of episodes will get them more votes. The show really hasn't won anything significant, uh, despite long being one of the most acclaimed shows on TV. And you know you hope that it can win something like directing or or Ray Seahorn um, or Bob Odenkirk. Like or Bob this, Odenkirk, wouldn't this be logical for him? It would be. Um, it's hard to know how well positioned he is in that category, but you know John Hamm won for the last season of Mad Men after not winning before, so it it has happened before. And the fact that he's like recovered from a heart attack. Yeah. You know yeah. he had a really scary thing happen, and um, now he's back. And he also had a. A great little movie in between, you know. Yeah. Um, that I forget the name of now. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. It's like yeah. it was a good little pandemic era movie. Um, yeah, that's a show that like I watched some of the first season and I fell off and I and I feel like increasing amounts of guilt and sort of FOMO about it. Um, mm-hmm. That I think I actually would go back and watch. Whereas I think, unfortunately, I will just never see the Americans because it's just it's just. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I let that ship sail for myself also. If they would stop making so many new shows, it would be easier to go back and watch the old ones. Um, Rebecca, I wanted to jump to you because you were the one who got me to watch the new season of The Flight Attendant, which is back. It was a COVID show, so it hasn't been gone nearly as long as some of these other ones. But um, similarly, I started watching the first episode and was like, what? What happened? And, like, I didn't remember whole characters and, like, twists that had happened. So our memories might need some work. Um, I watched the first episode, but Rebecca, you watched more. And uh, you said it's pretty good, right? It is good. It, I think, pushes much further than the first season. You know, the first season, you're sort of just watching uh, Kaylee Cuoco's character, who is an alcoholic, get through that. But now, you know, she's got a side job that makes her life seem even crazier than it did before. And 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 I think the credit goes to her for really being able to deliver that performance. And she has to do some really tough stuff this season. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but she, she has to do some acting exercises that would be difficult for anyone. And she really pulls them off. And I think you just kind of accept what they're doing and and go along for the ride. So I found it really enjoyable to watch. I feel like it's not spoiling too much. Like the last season, it had kind of the whole memory palace thing with her and yeah. um, M- Michelle Huseman. I'm going to say his name wrong. Um, and this season, at least from the first episode, it's her and herself. She's acting yes. opposite herself. Yes. And that and that continues through the season. And, and she does it really, really well. And I always am fascinated when actors have to do that because I think it's so hard to act across from a double, but then, you know, have to do the reactions yourself and and she she does a great job yeah it's that the show would not be successful without her i think Mm -hmm. you know and obviously she developed the project and like so it's very much hers from from the ground up but you know there's a moment in season two this isn't a spoiler because it's related to something from season one where she's talking to some people and she's like, I have to go tell the CIA or something. And I was like, what the hell is this show? <laughs> like, what are we talking about? They're at brunch and talking about the CIA, but she sells it, you know, yeah. consistently. And she sells that scene and scene and scene and scene after that. Like, I don't know how she doesn't collapse every day at the end of shooting because it just seems so exhausting mm-hmm. to be at that sort of antic, frantic level for so long. But, um, but she sustains it, and so does you know her her castmates like Rosie Perez and Zosha Mamet. Like they're all along for this ridiculous idea, and I think that they they somehow pull it off when every instance of that show, every scene, it feels like it could tilt into disaster, and it somehow doesn't. Mm-hmm. Through two episodes, no no amount of rewatch will t- explain what Rosie Perez's 
what her what her character situation is right now. I'm I'm deeply confused, <laughs> but glad to have Rosie Perez on our television. Always glad. as ever. I could definitely do with more of her. I mean, she has this odd side storyline this season, but I'm like, just give. I just I want more of her. I think she's so great, and I think yeah. she could play with a lot more if, if she gets it. Hopefully, in the next season. I'm looking at um at our friends at Gold Derby in the uh, Best Actress in a Comedy category predictions, um, where you know it's it's Jean Smart uh, up against Kaylee Cuoco from the HBO Max crew again. Um, but I don't like I don't know if Jean Smart's going to just steamroll over everybody again because she just did it last year. But the competition is kind of intense. You know, Rachel Brosnahan is back, Issa Rae is back, um, Quinta Brunson and Abbott Elementary. Um, but I don't know. I feel like Kaylee Cuoco might uh, have more of a fight this year, especially now that she's. Bared her soul about losing parts to Kate Hudson. Oh, you know, God. There'll be some I mean, TV e- Academy empathy for uh, the movie star versus TV star divide. <laughs> we all wanted to be in Knives Out, too. It was a very relatable uh, feeling that she had. Um, Rebecca, you were also the champion uh, for a, an HBO show, I think. It's HBO, right? David yep. Simon's yep. Man in the Cities. <laughs> all right, thank you. Um uh, yeah, it's a new David Simon series uh, set in Baltimore, among Baltimore cops, uh, which is very, very, very strong The Wire vibes, including a lot of cast members from The Wire. Um, we Own the City is premiered on HBO this week. And Rebecca, as you told me, if you liked The Wire, you're going to like the show, right? I spent the first episode just being like, man, I miss The Wire. God, The Wire is a great show. But then once you really like dive into the world they're creating and sort of obviously they're exploring corrupt cops and it's based on a real story. I think it it takes some of the the things the wire did best and brings them back and and this this show is only 6 episodes and I I definitely wanted more by the time I had finished it. So I don't say that often because there's 8,000 television shows to watch, <laughs> but I think that really shows how I could have stayed in this world longer and and especially the performances. I think John Bernthal has been doing a lot of great work and this is right up there with what he's done and 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 then a lot of the supporting actors deliver some really strong performances even if their parts weren't that big because you are again dealing with sort of a bigger ensemble show and so there's a lot of characters to keep track of but I think I would definitely um, recommend it. Yeah, there were two big standouts. I've watched three episodes, and uh, one big one was uh, Jamie Hector, who played um, Marlowe on The Wire, like, mm-hmm. famously, like, terrifying villain, um, as, you know, in the first three episodes thus far as, like, kind of the good detective. Like, he's the guy who wears the suit and glasses and is trying to do the right thing. Um, and he's so great at it. And it just, you know, 20 years later, just seeing the range that he has is really wonderful. Um, and then I did not recognize Josh Charles, uh, mm-hmm. who famously uh, dissed Aaron Sorkin this week. Um, yeah, who's playing kind of the worst of the bad cops and just a real like petty mean like Baltimore cop um and when I realized that was him I was really astonished so there's uh, much like the wire the longer you watch the more just like tiny roles and performances start to blow you away Gabrielle Carteris yeah Could you, I was yeah. like what good for her <laughs> she's done <laughs> being SAG, SAG president yeah. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um I think Wenmi Misako was so good you know she mm-hmm. was on um Loki, yeah, and um, wasn't she Lovecraft Country? Lovecraft, thank you, and um, and a good Netflix movie called His House. She's excellent as this attorney who's sort of investigating police brutality in the wake of the Freddie Gray um, death. And I think that uh, the guy from the Ryan Murphy shows, David Corin Sweat, um, who plays mm-hmm. like this kind of young detective, 
I all I want to say about that is like keep the beard. <laughs> <laughs> He's very cute. Yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. Um, but it's just one of those rambling ensembles of great actors, some of whom we haven't seen do things like this before, so it's that's fun. And other people who were just like are very much reliably in their in their wheelhouse. And I think that's one of the pleasures of a David Simon show is that every little bit of texture is considered, you know. There are no real loose ends or or weak spots, I don't think. And you know, Reynaldo Marcus Green, um, it's not a flashy bit of direction, but it's a very competent control. There's one shot in the first episode where Bernthal is walking into a police department that just kind of is this, it's a really interesting piece of visual storytelling that is very subtle, but I don't know. I, I like David Simon shows, even if I don't always love David Simon on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> the, general, the general rule. The general That's rule. A, a reason Elon should have run us all off of there uh, for good. Um, I mean, David, you wrote about John Bernthal around King Richard, right? Like him and Reynaldo Marcus Green. Yeah, he seems yeah. primed for an awards breakout soon. I don't, I don't yeah. know if this is going to be the project. As great as he is, David Simon has had a very strange relationship with the Television Academy, where his shows just do not click most of the time. I mean, I thought Oscar Isaac was so amazing in Show Me a Hero, and he wasn't even mm-hmm. nominated. You had Plot Against America, which I thought was like a major, major show for him, and it didn't get anything. And yeah. this one, this is an interesting one, because I, I think if it didn't have the wire connection, it might have come and gone a little bit even more unfairly than it might otherwise. But it does have this interesting, it is playing as this interesting companion piece where conversation around policing over the past 20 years, I think is really reflected in the tone and urgency and vigor of the show. And I'm curious if if it does click in a way that maybe we're writing it off just because it is a David Simon show. Um, but he, yeah, The Wire infamously was ignored by the Emmys for five years, and that hasn't really changed aside from uh, Generation Kill was a big Emmy winner. But it's been a I was just time. about to be like, uh, The Night Of did well, but uh, that was not David Simon. That was Richard Price. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was a different crime show. D- different, like... Socially minded, well acted ensemble <laughs> yeah. crime show on HBO. As you mentioned, David, this whole like David Simon and the Emmy issue, I just don't understand why. Like, I feel like The Wire was so ignored. You know, it only was nominated twice and didn't win anything. Why aren't people waiting for the opportunity to give right. him the awards he probably should have earned for that show? It feels like this is the show where you could do that. But yeah, it's definitely a puzzle to me. Well, and it's something about how his shows don't give you catharsis the way that you would want it to. Like, the beauty of The Wire is that you've got these individuals who you really care very deeply about and who make good decisions and bad decisions. But kind of the ethos of all David Simon works is, like, systems are bad. They do bad mm-hmm. things to people, and you can't fix them. Right. <laughs> You're not, not going to get not, this tied up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And it's kind of a grim way way to leave you. And maybe that's what um, what keeps people away. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. 
I want to look ahead a little bit to Under the Banner of Heaven, which is the first of uh, several true crime series we have coming. Um, I mean, obviously, true crimes have been everywhere for many years now, but there's um, this and Candy and The Staircase are very similarly thematically linked. Um, But we should talk about Under the Banner of Heaven on its own because it's based on this um, John Krakauer nonfiction book that was a huge bestseller in the mid-2000s, I guess. Um, David, you know better than me because you talked to Justin Lance Black about creating it. I did. Uh, This was 10 years in the making for him. He had the rights with Ron Howard and Brian Grazer out of his kind of astonishing rise uh, as a screenwriter in Hollywood. He won an Oscar for Milk. He had just written this J. Edgar biopic that was going to be directed by Clint Eastwood and star DiCaprio. He was a staff writer on Big Love, which is uh, an HBO hit for several years. Um, And as he talks about in the piece, this show kind of took over his life and or it was a movie actually originally and he struggled with it a lot he grew up uh, in the mormon church um both his mother and him growing up gay um had a lot of struggles coming of age in it and growing up in it and i think he wanted to really paint the complex picture that the book does of mormonism which is a lot harder to do when you're not, you know, don't have 400 pages. Um, Mm. And inevitably, a feature treatment just wasn't enough for what he wanted to do with it. Um, Enter the rise of the modern prestige limited series, which proved the right format for this. Um, And it suddenly came together much more quickly after many years of, as he says, bad failed drafts. Yes, the show stars Andrew Garfield, who's playing a fictional creation, uh, a detective who investigates the real-life murders of Brenda Lafferty, um, who's a young mother who married into a family edging toward Mormon fundamentalism, uh, and of her baby girl, Erica. And the show, I think, really smartly interweaves the many questions and mysteries of the book while giving it the pace of a more standard true crime thrill. I was, I was really fascinated by the way he did it. I'm a huge fan of the book. Uh, I recently drove through Utah while listening to the audiobook with my husband, which was a slightly haunting experience. We but call that good... 40X in, in reality. <laughs> but uh, a very good primer for the show. I was once in driving in very rural Utah, and we stopped at a gas station and asked if there was any food around. And he was like, oh, there's a restaurant down the road. And we said, what time does it close? And this old guy just looked at his watch and all he said to us in response was, better hurry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought he was going to say, it's Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the the book is fascinating and a very successful blending of, you know, focusing on one murder case and then zooming way out and looking at the history of the Mormon church, particularly Mormon fundamentalism. And I had been a little bit nervous I understood that the TV show would mostly focus on on the murder and not the the history part, but I was I was concerned maybe that it would seem a little bit too familiar. Then oh, it's just another murder mystery set in a you know a, an interesting community, but that's all it has to distinguish itself. But the show does go into the history a bit too, which I think is a a bold choice that that works from what I've seen. That book would seem kind of unadaptable to me, but they seem to be pulling it off. Yeah. Something I'm intrigued to see more of, I watched the first episode, but David, you were telling me that the relationship between Andrew Garfield, who's a, you know, a Mormon detective and his uh, partner played by Gil Birmingham, who is a Native American and, you know, lives in this uh, 99% white Mormon town in Utah. And you said his character, Gil Birmingham's character, um, becomes kind of more of a central focus of the story, right? 
Yeah, um, which is a really another smart, surprising touch in the show. One piece of Mormonism that John Krakauer emphasizes in the book is Mormonism is considered by many to be a kind of quintessential American religion, um, having been founded in the American West in uh, during the Second Great Awakening and coming out of this you know, explosion of ideas. And so you have these Mormon characters staking a claim to their land and to where they are, to this place. And I think that the counter that Dustin Lance Black offers with this character is here's someone who has much more of a realistic claim to this land and this this place. And there's an interesting tension there. He's the one non-Mormon character who's very prominent in the show. Andrew Garfield's playing a, a devout uh, mainstream Mormon um, and is challenged by his, uh, his faith is challenged by his encounters with uh, those who have a more fundamentalist, um, old school reading of Mormonism, mm. which if you've seen uh, Big Love, say, um, you can guess at what that means, at least partly. Yeah, I can. It's, so this is an FX show, but it's on Hulu. So you people can actually watch. It's I mean, only the, on Hulu. It's oh my god. It's it's FX on Hulu, but FX on Hulu as a brand no longer exists. So it is FX produced, but Hulu <laughs> distributed. distributed. It's look at least it's widely freely available, and it's not going to be an impeachment American yes. crime story situation. Yeah, we can we can all be grateful. For uh, that. Yeah, um, but I, I think that the the combination of the shows. A really strong sense of place and local color um, balanced with a really well-paced true crime mystery uh, should should hopefully get, get garnered some eyeballs. I mean, as you said, Katie, there are a lot of true crime shows with that share a lot in common <laughs> coming mm-hmm. out over the next month. Um, but I do think this one uh, has a lot on its mind. Um, it's trying to do a lot, and I, I, it's really admirable and, and worth grappling with, I think. And it just feels so good to see more of Andrew Garfield. Like, not that he was not plenty busy over the last six months, and I feel kind of genuinely sorry for him that he has to promote something else after that Oscar season. Um, but he's just, he's in such a great place in his career and what he's doing right now. He's such a great anchor for this show. Yeah, yeah I feel like uh, I've watched the first three or four at this point, and I think his performance is really great. But I'm I'm also really impressed by a lot of the supporting cast once I got them all straight because it is a big ensemble but mm-hmm. um, big family I think, yeah <laughs> but Daisy Edgar Jones I think is really wonderful and I especially like Wyatt Russell I think he at first I didn't even recognize him with a different haircut but he is really strong as one of the the Lafferty brothers um I want to stick with the limited series category and the actors in particular Nathan wrote in saying he was rooting for Hamish Linklater in Midnight Mass, which I admit I had not thought about in a while. That was a like a pretty big hit Netflix show a while back. And when we were talking about this before the show started, um, I think either David or Richard, one of you guys, you know, you said he might have more of a chance than Nathan was assuming. What do we think well, about Midnight Mass? Midnight Mass, I think, is the first ever show that's all monologues. Okay. <laughs> just every scene in that show is just someone being like, well, you know, this reminds me of this story. And I think that Hamish Linklater has one of the big monologues in it, if I'm remembering correctly, that's like really effectively done. His character is very, uh, it's a hard character to play, let's say. It's a weird show that, you know, verges on, it's horror, it's supernatural. It's, but yeah, he's been such a consistent presence. He's in Diaslit. Like he, he's mm-hmm. just a great theater actor. You know, I've seen him in Shakespeare in the Park a ton of times, I feel like. And I don't know if that show was sticky enough in people's minds, but maybe if Netflix does a sort of campaign for it, I think he would be clearly the actor to single out there. Yeah. 
Will he be lead? Yes, he's lead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I so wish that he were competing in last year's relatively anemic best actor in a limited series field. Unfortunately, the category is just so much more competitive this time around compared to last year. Um, yeah, David, you're writing about this this week, so people can read uh, much more about this. I yeah, and not. this is actually a fantastic reminder to include him because I think he's really, <laughs> he's a wonderful actor who I've been a big fan of for a long time. Uh, and he's really, really good in the show, um, which I didn't love. There were maybe 7,000 too many monologues for me, but <laughs> he's really fantastic in it. And the show was hugely popular. And Mike Flanagan is who's who's done a number of these shows now for Netflix uh, is very popular within you know among a certain subset of viewers for Netflix and I think it's definitely conceivable that a performance as showy as this in a show that you know did come and go as a lot of Netflix shows did and do but as popular as this um could surprise with the right combination of votes I, I wouldn't totally rule it out but Netflix would I think have to get it in voters minds again and I don't know how active of a campaign they're mounting for it at this point. David, do you want to just run down quickly who is making this such a competitive year for limited series in addition to Andrew Garfield, who we just talked about? Sure. So Andrew Garfield, I think, is at the is at the very top of, of the category. Um, you just have a lot of big name actors who I think are going to automatically assume some votes. You have Colin Firth in The Staircase. Um, I believe the embargo is up as of this show being out, but he's giving, in a way, a transformative performance, and uh, he has not done television in a long time. Uh, Michael Keaton for Dope Sick, uh, who had such a great speech at the SAG Awards and is definitely out front as of now. Um, Oscar Isaac, Scenes from a Marriage, um, Ben Foster in The Survivor, which is uh, it feels like an old school HBO movie directed by Barry Levinson. Yeah. Um, but gotta have one every year. I watched it in virtually in Toronto last year and he's he's very good in it so Vicky Creeps Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> yep um, and you know you can keep going down the list but those alone make it a pretty stacked category and as of last year at least there were only five nominees and, and you hope that someone like Himish Patel can get in for Station Eleven you've got Jared Leto for We Crashed and John Bernthal it's a very competitive yeah, category yeah yeah, and, you know, it's been so competitive for actresses for so long, like last year, famously, with a Mayor of Easttown um, on down. Um, and the men have just lagged behind until this year, it seems. Well, we want to keep getting your questions because there are some we didn't get to. But there's so much TV to talk about. No wonder. So we're going to leave that there. But please keep telling us what shows you want to hear about, because honestly, it's sometimes hard for us to figure out uh, what we want to get into. So in the meantime, that does it for this week's show. Uh, find us at VF.com, including David's piece about limited series actors and Richard's review of Under the Banner of Heaven and everything else. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 718-550-2059. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best pitch for And Just Like That, season two, goes to Richard Lawson. They're at brunch and talking about the CIA. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.